This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Event Dynamic specializes in maximizing revenue and increasing attendance. I'm Travis Apple, and I'll be your host of this podcast. I've been fortunate to spend my entire career in the sports sales industry, and I wanted the opportunity to give back, to give back to those individuals that want to get in this business, or for those individuals that are already in this business that want to continue to excel at an elite level. For those of you who know me, hustle has always been important, hence the name. Each week, I'm going to have the opportunity to sit down with industry professionals to talk about their career path what it takes to be successful, and ultimately a few key takeaways for you to apply to your everyday. Without further ado, our guest this week has a strong reputation in this industry. He's impacted a lot of careers, including my own. He's held multiple C-level executive roles, and at the end of the day, knows how to operate a business at a high level. I'm excited to have my friend, the Executive Vice President and Chief Revenue Officer of the New York Mets, Lou DePauli. Lou, welcome to the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Travis. Lou, such a pleasure to always talk to you. You know, I was fortunate to work with you on two separate occasions, and I certainly know most of the listeners know your name, and I'm really excited to talk about your career journey, and, and I know, as always, you'll have a ton of advice for all of our listeners, but, you know, before diving into your illustrious career, let's dive into your thought process on a really hot item uh, and a topic in our industry, especially over the last couple of years, but you were on the forefront of it, and that's business analytics. You know, Lou, you certainly have a reputation in the industry as an innovative leader, uh, an early adopter of analytics. And, and I guess what has made you so intrigued by the analytics of business? And, and ultimately, why do you think it took so long for the business to evolve with the investments and resources into analytics? Well, uh, thanks, Travis. And I, I appreciate that setup. You know, uh, analytics are very near and dear to my heart. You know, they always have been. I think I'm a little bit hardwired that way. You know, um, I just think that, you know, I was told at a very early age when I was in the insurance business, you know, that you could either work harder or you could work smarter, right? Yep. And some people took the approach of just working harder. They just work 13 hours a day, seven days a week. Some people work smarter. They worked a little bit less. They would just maximize their time. I said, if I can combine the two, I might do really well. I'll work harder and smarter. It's just a matter of I need to be smarter than the next person. And then what makes me smarter, you know, in terms of being better to target my efforts and to improve my output was, was really important. So, you know, I, I applied that once I got into sports of just trying to figure out what's the most important things I need to know to drive the business. And then let's just focus on those things. So knowing the data inside and out, how to look at it, how to maximize the return, whether it's on the sales efficiency side or on the marketing automation, whatever it may be to build an engine that will make you smarter, a lot smarter. And then if you work harder, the results are uh, phenomenal. 
the results are even better. You, you, you hear a lot about it, it's like you need to work smarter, not harder. But to your point, you've took it both ways. You know, if you work Correct. smarter and work harder, you're going to take it one extra step up. Exactly. And that, that's always been kind of the whole thing. Um, you know, I could probably, we could do a whole podcast just about my thoughts on the whole analytics yeah. piece and what we've done. But, you know, as an early adopter, you know, I was somebody that you go all the way back to when I was in the insurance business, gosh, 27, 28 years ago. Um, I actually wrote some programs of my own to actually help automate my business for my brokers who were put business through me. Um, when I got first into sports, I built my own databases um, and, and worked off of them because there was nobody else doing that. And I figured, well, this makes it a lot easier if I could just do this myself. I wrote my own programs for our own uh, marketing of our own, uh, our usage at, at a minor league hockey franchise. And it just continued to grow and grow and grow because it's such an important aspect of knowing how your business runs. And, and so to that point, you know, you were, you were building this and utilizing data and analytics, you know, to your point, 27, 28 years ago and, and on forward, but really in the sports business, I feel like that data and analytics has kind of hyped up maybe the last, let's call it four or five years specifically. Why do you think it took so long for the sports business to come around and, and really start it? You know, traditionally sports, the, the sports industry is a little bit slower to adopt to most things. Yep. You know, um, you know, the tech world and everybody else, you know, the Fortune 500 companies, they're at the leading edge of that. Sports takes a little bit longer because sometimes it's harder to see the value of it, you know, in sports. Because, um, again, a lot of focus in sports is on the on-field product. Like, what are we going to do to win or lose a game? You know, if we, if we win more games, we'll generate more revenue. That's great. That's a given. But all of a sudden, you know, what happened was over time when – teams were being sold for much more and more, you know, dollar amounts, right? Higher, higher dollar amounts. So the owners became a little bit more interested in how quickly can I turn around the investment level on my franchise? You know, if you bought a team for $20 million in 1972, you're not carrying a lot of debt in 1990. It's like, okay, I'm fine. But if you spent $1 billion for a franchise or $2 billion for a franchise, you want to make sure you're getting your money back yeah. and you want to make sure you're getting it back quickly and you hire smart people. So it's taken a little bit of time, but now it's being fully embraced pretty much by every team and every league. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You see some teams that are now having 10, 15 person analytics teams, uh, which that was yeah. unheard of a couple of years ago. And yes. you know, little, back when we worked at the Hawks and Thrashers and, you know, I was in the, on the sales end as a team member, I remember hearing you talk to the staff and you'd always be discussing numbers and, you know, it, it, early on, I was 21, 22 years old, and I was thinking, like, wow, th this guy has very numbers, and how does he always come up with this? But what I appreciate is you always had things to support your decisions. And, and then when I got to Pittsburgh and started working with you at the Pirates, and then I was in leadership, I then really saw a whole new idea of your mindset and analytics from the details of a hustle report to pricing to lead scoring, to everything in between. And so, you know, you, Lou, you've used analytics, as you've talked about, and taught a lot of people to utilize them, even when it came to staffing, you know, and the recruiting, training, and development. How do you view that? And how do you view analytics in the staffing landscape? Well, look, I think there's a couple of things. Number one, you know, you need to use some statistical models to show, like, how much staff should I have? And unfortunately, what a lot of people would do is, okay, well, I'm in X market. Here's what this other team does in a similar market size they have six salespeople okay we'll have six salespeople yeah that's not really the most you know efficient way to do go about your business you know especially 
you know, we've worked together in Atlanta, a bigger market. We worked together in Pittsburgh, a smaller market. And then I'm in New York now with the Mets, uh, the biggest market. Right. So you have to figure out, okay, first things first, how many salespeople do I need, right? Taking the opportunity of the marketplace, you build the metrics and the models to say, okay, I should have about X amount here, X amount there. Then how do you segment those people out? And then understand like, what is the market opportunity? Yep. And then build your staff out from there, train them and give them the tools to maximize those opportunities. So uh, it's something that a lot of people just, hey, you know, we have 10 salespeople, maybe we should have 12, you know, or we have 10, maybe we should have eight, right? I've always looked at it as we need to find the right amount of people, give them the right amount of tools and give them the right resources to be successful and then build their metrics for their goals and their compensation, as you remember, yep. off of what those expected, you know, returns should be on your efforts. So everything is completely thought through and it's definitely worked because everywhere we've been, we've seen a marked increase in revenue. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, to, to that point, you've always done a great job and, you know, your career path, uh, you've done a lot of great things, but I think the thing that I always see is just your tree, right? You know, the, the people you've built and, you know, that went on to do great things. And I think, you know, myself included. And um, so why is it so important in your eyes to continually recruit, hire, and ultimately train and develop at the highest level? Look, that's, that's the bottom line of any business if you want to be successful long-term. But as I say to people all the time, if you break it down into a sports analogy, right? GMs get paid a lot of money to build, especially in baseball, a really good farm system. The teams that are good for multiple years, decades in a row, have a very deep farm system, you know, bench strength, yep. because you need that to sustain your organization over time. You can't always bring in the top free agent that's on the marketplace because either you can't afford them or sometimes they just don't work out. But if you build your base of people, you know, drafting you right out of high school or college, or in our case, you know, taking someone like Travis Apple right out of school, grooming you the way we think you need to be groomed, right? And working with you and helping you get, you know, up in your career, that just helps significantly more than trying to bring a bunch of hired guns in. It just doesn't pay off. And then you come up through our system, you understand how it works, you understand the culture, then you start spreading that to the people that work for you. And then it just mushrooms to the point where you know, my tree, I don't even know how many people are in it at this point, to be honest with you. I can only imagine. Yeah, your tree is growing. I mean, it's just one of those things where you say, yeah, that's how it goes. Because then once you build a successful system, it's a lot easier to recruit people to come work for you because you get a reputation. Yep. Like, oh, Travis really develops people. You know, working for this organization like the Mets, they really develop and train people. Like, I want to work there. Yep. So it just really pays off in spades. And it's really more about creating that right culture, hiring the right people, putting them in the right roles, and then letting them do their thing. And then continually nurturing. You hear from me all the time. I'm like a frustrated teacher. I feel half the time like I'm teaching all day, yep. but that's good because I want people to learn and grow. Right. And I think that was always the thing that I enjoyed working with you on two different spots and, you know, and, and not only still being a friend with you is that you've always been willing to leave the door open for anybody, you know, and one-on-ones and individual meetings, but also your, the focus on hiring the right people and training and develop them to become elite. Um, yeah. And so, you know, kind of back to a little bit on the analytics route, 
you know, you've always uh, done a tremendous job of, of, again, you know, listening and putting plans in place. So for those listeners out there that are in a sales role or in a leadership role, why should they adopt and better understand the data and analytics landscape to being successful in this business? You know, whatever makes you smarter, makes you more efficient, makes you more productive. It's real simple. Um, the, the more you can know, I mean, again, breaking it back to sports, right? You've seen an evolution of, uh, of hitting in baseball or pitching or basketball analytics because, you know, you can look at these things and if they can make you just that much better and you repeat it over and over and over, you know, you're going to be much more successful. So if you could do the same thing on the business side, it just, it pays off in spades. It, it really does. And I have not ever seen it not work if implemented properly. So I think the most important thing is to understand the data behind everything and use it as your engine to make all your decisions. It's fairly simple. You know, you think it's intuitive, or at least it is to me, but I'm surprised that I see so many organizations at times, especially when you go back to the beginning of Teambo, you know, when we started that in, the, in 2000, how many teams just weren't sophisticated compared to where they are now in the NBA? It's night and day. And it's all because we brought that mindset to all the, to all the NBA teams and, and it's really paid off. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. Understand the data and that, that moves the engine, you know, and that puts the plan in place. So you're kind of back to, to starting in your career and in your life. So you grew up in the Northeast, got into sales right away. You mentioned earlier, you operate an insurance company. Like what were some key learnings from that experience? How did that come about? So, you know, I, I had the non-traditional route into sports, right? So as a very young person, you know, I got married at a young age. Um, and, and wound up having a baby immediately. So um, I knew that the way to make money quickly, uh, which because I needed to support a family, was I needed to get a job in sales. And in high school, I'd actually been a telemarketer. This is actually going back into 1983. You know, so when I would actually call people, they'd answer their phone. Yeah, yeah. I'd call them on a Saturday, the phone would ring, and go, oh, I wonder who it is. Hello. Right. That was me on the other end of the phone trying to sell you something, right? What were you selling back in high school? Back then, it was books. It was, it was children's books for a publishing company in Connecticut. Uh, they published all of the Dr. Seuss, Mickey Mouse, or Disney books. They also were a large producer of encyclopedias. So I worked on Saturday and Sunday at, as a 16-year-old, literally. That was one week after my 16th birthday. I started selling. Um, and I worked from 9 to 5 Saturday, 11.45 to 6.30 on Sunday. So I had no... No weekend life. Say, no kind of life. No, but you know what? Um, I got paid commission based on how many books I could sell. And in two days, this is going back into the 80s, I used to make 250 to $350 in two days. A lot of money, especially in high school yeah. as a 16-year-old. Correct. So all of a sudden, like you have all this money and you say, all right, this is pretty good. So I knew when I, when I got married, I needed to get a job where I could sell. And I went into the insurance business and I worked for one of, and about the time, the largest insurance company in this country. And I worked my way up. I got promoted after two years. I ran a staff of 13 people uh, when I was 22 years old. But I always realized I thought there was something more to it for me. So I started my own brokerage. Uh, it was doing very well, but I never loved the insurance business. You know, I, I figured out, as you said, like I grew up in New York and Connecticut my insurance career was in Massachusetts. So, you know, there's this whole New York, Boston thing, right? <laughs> so 
I, I moved to the Boston area and I figured out pretty quickly that these people are so passionate about sports. I can't go in there and tell them how much I love the Knicks because that's not going to help me. Right. Yep. So I would go in and spend, if I had an hour of your time, Travis, I would spend 45 minutes talking about Larry Bird and the Celtics, Ray Bork and the Bruins, how they were killing it, talking about the Patriots. They just and hurt side. No, and I created a common bond with these people. And then the last 15 minutes was me selling them and closing a deal and moving on. But the one thing I noticed during that time was I saw a lot of things that, you know, there's a right way to sell and there's a wrong way to sell. You know, we've all seen the movie or maybe, maybe, maybe most people have seen the movie Glengarry Glen Ross, right? Yep. Yep. So I tell people that that is what it was like for me for the insurance company that I worked for almost to the T. Somebody comes in from the home office, they start yelling and swearing at all the salespeople, you know, coffees for closers. I mean, I mean, I lived that working in that environment and I hated it. I said, that's not the right way to treat people. I can actually get more out of them if I just treated them with respect, provided them maybe some insight into some data or how I looked at things and how to make them more efficient. So that just slowly kept evolving me into when I got into sports, et cetera, that you know, if you could just be a little bit smarter about what you're doing, treat people the right way, you're gonna get a lot further along and I'm getting a lot more production out of my team than I am if I, you know, come in like the Alec Baldwin character and just treat everybody like dirt and yell at them and, you know, take their coffee away. And, <laughs> right. You know, it's yeah, just tough. Exactly. Well, so the, the last question I have before we dive into your sports career, you know, a lot of people listening have, have thought about, you know, opening their own company, you know, post sports or, hey, I'm going to take this money, invest and do some side hustles or something on the side part of the business. And so, what were some of the key learnings as you opened your own brokerage at 22 years old and oversaw a big stack? Like, what were some of those key learnings that maybe you still apply to your everyday? Yeah, you know, the one thing, you know, when, when you start your own business, there's a lot you don't know, right? I thought I was pretty smart at the time, but you realize, you know, I was, I was only 24 and I'm sitting there saying, okay, well, great. I, I, I created a, a, a C corporation and I did everything I had to do. Like, okay, I got all this. They just start running a business. You go, whoa, wait. There's payroll taxes. Who's doing it? Who's doing all the accounting, right? Who's doing all the tracking of the commissions and paying of the reps and hiring of the staff and paying the rent and finding an office space? And, uh, okay, I guess that's me. Right. So, you know, I learned a lot about taxes and taxation and finance and payroll and benefits and timing of commission payments and, you know, finding rent, making a rent agreement. Like, you learned all these things because all of a sudden I owned the business. I had to do it all. I had a partner, but uh, you know, my partner in the business was more interested in just doing the sales piece yeah. and then left all the administrative work to me plus selling. But you know, it, it worked for me because you know, I enjoy that challenge. Uh, I found it very educational. I actually went to the IRS and asked them for help and said, teach me what I'm supposed to be doing rather than just guessing. You know, there, there wasn't Google back then. Research that. Yeah, so it was one of those, like, I made a phone call to the IRS, and they sent somebody out. We spent a couple hours together. They showed me how to file my quarterly taxes and how to do everything that I needed to do and what my withholdings should be and how do I treat my employees, and it was great. So we did that for a few years, but I was always, like, you know, always looking for something more. I, I liked the insurance business, didn't love it, and then when an opportunity came to get into sports, through me trying to sell them insurance, by the way, um, I, I jumped in at both feet and never looked back. 
was going to say, and that, that's a perfect transition, right? You know, so, and I remember you telling me that story, you were trying to sell insurance and then you ended up transitioning working in sports for the Worcester Ice Cats in the AHL, uh, including working there for their inaugural season and then onto the Florida Marlins, you know, early on in their existence. Uh, you were there even for the 97 World Series Championship. And yep. so looking back at you, know, the early parts of your sports career, you know, started a team in the AHL, then on to, to work for a team, you know, in the South Florida market, which is a tough market. What did you enjoy most about those experiences? You know, both of those were very similar. You know, so we started this American Hockey League team in Massachusetts from ground up, right? So you were able to just get knee deep in and you're just building something. I had just built my own insurance brokerage. Now here we are building a hockey team. I had a lot more passion about it because it was sports, yep. even though I knew nothing and probably still know nothing about hockey. You know, growing up, I did not follow hockey at all. But I applied a lot of my business sense that I knew from running an insurance business to a hockey franchise. What happened on the ice or whatever, I didn't bother with, but I knew how to run a business. And then we were very successful out of the box for the first couple of years. Um, and we set some records for attendance and we had some of the largest crowds the league had seen in over 20 years. So what I enjoyed the most was just building that up, right? So it got to the point where we were heading into year three. Now we're starting to kind of level off with just a normal life cycle of a minor league team. And then somebody referred me to a job with the Marlins. And I went down and I interviewed and I told him like, listen, I want to build something. So basically without saying too much, but you know, part of my presentation to them in my job interview was I said, you should fire everybody and start over. <laughs> yep. And Build they said, people. yeah. And they said, if that's what you want to do, we'd give you that latitude. I said, okay. So, you know, by the time I got there, all the salespeople, we fired them all except two. Um, you know, we kept one, the top salesperson and we kept an intern and we started fresh. Yep. And we get, we built a sales team. I hired people from all over the country you know, and just put them together in Florida and we built a really good machine. Then, you know, we had a lot of other things happen. We had a lot of success. We, we grew attendance at a, an incredible rate, but it, it was always about building, um, you know, the, the building to see the success of the business, but also to build the staff and see the maturity and the development of those people as they went along. And now, you know, some of those people are senior vice presidents at other sports organizations or in the entertainment business. And I just look back and I go, wow, you know what? I gave them that, I gave that person their first job out of sports. And, and that is very rewarding for me. Yeah. You gave them a shot. And I think you even looking back to, to your time at the AHL, you mentioned there, you know, early on in the podcast here, you said like you have a passion for the data and analytics and people, you didn't have necessarily a passion for hockey. And I think that's a, a miss you know, Noman in this business is like, well, I grew up a diehard hockey fan, so I need to work in hockey. Like, that doesn't matter. You got to have a passion for the business and a passion for your craft. You know, the sports business and the experience is going to be around. You just need to have a passion. You know, I, I think that's one of the biggest misnomers, you know, and you've heard this too, uh, Travis, is that when we sit there and people ask us, like, don't really understand the business, they think you and I, when we were working together, we sat around all day talking about, Andrew McCutcheon and the players on the Pirates and who are we going to draft. Right. We didn't once talk about the team no. other than like what the promotions were and what's the score and what inning is it because right. I got five more people I need to go see and try and sell. Like yep. we're business people in a sports environment and it's a nice environment to work in, yep. but it's not as if like we're so focused and that's all we do is talk about baseball all day. It, because if, if that's, you know, what, what somebody thinks it's going to be, 
they're going to be in for a rude awakening because it just isn't that way or they're just not going to be as successful. Yep, exactly. And so, you know, quickly prior to, to your next step in your career, you know, with the Marlins, you know, you, you did something a lot of people don't get to do is that you're part of the, the 97 World Series Championship. Like yeah. how exciting was that for you? And then, then ultimately, like, you know, how did you leverage that? You know, so look, that was an amazing experience, you know, somewhat surreal. You know, you're sitting there. Um, we knew we had a good team that year. I mean, if you go back and look at that roster, that, that was a loaded team. And we beat a very good Indians team in the World Series, beat a very good Atlanta Braves team in the NLCS. There you, um, you know, it, it was a fun experience, but it was also a little bit, you know, tempered a little bit because we knew the organization was for sale. You know, that the owner at the time, you know, uh, Mr. Heisinga, Wayne Heisinga, he, he, he made it very clear about halfway through the season that he was going to sell the team regardless of what was going to happen. So there was a, well, you're very excited for everything and it's an amazing ride to be a part of. We knew that we were going to get sold. We didn't really understand, at least I didn't understand at the time, how quickly we were going to move, right? So we win the World Series. It's a euphoric game seven, extra innings at home, 68,000 people a game at our ballpark in Miami, right? Uh, Opalaka, right? So you wind up and only a few weeks later, we started trading off some of our best players, yes, you know, Moises Alou, Kevin Brown. And then all of a sudden, and we completely dismantled the team um, within a few months and never gave ourselves a chance to compete. So we went from, oh boy, it's been a long time since I've recited these numbers, but <laughs> I, think, I think we went 92 and 70 that year and, and won the World Series as a wild card, first team to do that. And then we went 54 and 108 the next year. <laughs> yeah, quite the drastic turnaround. Yeah, no one had ever done it before. Um, no one had ever done anything like that. It's the worst, you know, the biggest, you know, best to worst scenario to worst. that you yeah. can imagine. But I, I always tell people that was a great learning opportunity. Yeah. Because here we are, our first year in Major League Baseball, my first full season, we win the World Series, we grow attendance 36%, you know, our gate is up even more, sponsorships are coming in, you're like, wow how easy is this and then you get that reality punch like all right now let's see how good you are right and we had people who bailed we had yeah. a bunch of people who leave we had some people who stayed behind and really fought their way through and learned a lot right. um and then we had an ownership change where john henry came and bought the marlins which was great um you know he gave me an opportunity and promoted me up to vice president got to oversee more of the revenue pieces of the business and just to work with someone like john to see how he thinks I mean, the man's a genius to sit there. And, and he also was extremely passionate about baseball to see like, boy, what, what a nice thing to learn and see how he operated. Yeah. And, um, you know, so the tenure, it was an up and down. I mean, that, that five years or so I was there was really about as tumultuous as you can get yeah. highs and lows, but there was so much learning that happened. I always tell people like, I don't know if I'd be in the same position I would be today if I didn't go through that. You go through it. And I'm glad you said that. You, you mentioned it twice. It was such a good learning experience. And, you know, for individuals that are getting in this business or individuals in this business, you, know, you hear a lot like, well, the team's not very good. The team's not very good. But actually, that should make you even look better if you can excel at a high level and sell at a high level for a team that isn't out winning championships. Correct. I mean, that's the idea, right? That's when, you know, we're looking to hire people. I'm not looking to hire someone who's necessarily been working at a team that sells out every game. 
Right. I'm looking for that person that's working for a, a little bit more of a challenger situation where they've proven they could be scrappy and they could drive the bottom line. Like that, that's, the, that's the mentality you need to have and as we transition to talking about the NBA and Teambo. Yeah. That was one of the things that we thought made us unique out of the box is that, you know, Bernie Mullen, who I know we've already had on the podcast, right, uh, and our old boss, and we love him to death. You know, Bernie had been in a tough situation in Pittsburgh. You know, he was with the Rockies out of the box. He had minor league hockey. And before that, he had other various careers in sales and, and education. So Bernie had seen highs and lows. Yeah. He'd been in some tough situations. I came in being with the Marlins and a minor league hockey franchise and, and startup uh, in my own insurance brokerage. Scott O'Neill winds up joining us. He'd been with the Nets when they were terrible, right? I mean, terrible. Uh, Bill Sutton came in as an academic, but he'd done a lot of consulting for a lot of struggling franchises. And all of a sudden, we all get together and we go and visit an NBA team. It was easy for us to sit down with an, an owner of a club or a CMO to say, listen, we've walked in your shoes. Like, we get it. Here's what we've done and here's how you overcome it. And then once we started gaining their trust and respect, they realized, like, those guys know what they're talking about. Yeah. And I think that was, it's a perfect lead in and it's a perfect segue. You know, we've talked about on 52 Weeks of Hustle, a lot about Teambo. You know, I've had Dr. Bernie Mullen and Dr. Bill Sutton and now yourself. And you guys were all part of that inaugural building of team marketing and business operations, which a lot of people have worked through. I went through and, and worked there as well. But, you know, I think one of the things that always stood out to me, and you kind of briefly hit on it there is the start of Teambo, is just how you were able to really demand the room when it comes to executive teams or ownership groups. And, you know, again, to our advice for listeners, you know, some listeners are in sales or in leadership. You know, one of the constants is being prepared when you go into that big meeting, whether it be that big prospect and the CEO of a company you're trying to sell a sweet lease to, or if you're going into the executive room internally as a leader or into ownership, like what have you learned and what advice would you give in regards to communicating and getting decisions, you know, at the highest level? Well, I think sometimes, you know, the biggest thing you can do is, and this is not going to be a shocker to you, but A, you need to know your facts. Like you have to have all your data. You know, it's hard to argue with data, right? Yeah. And then the second thing is you need to know your audience, right? So that when we would go in as a group and meet with David Stern, you know, you have to understand how David thought and, and the way he acted and reacted to certain things, right? But if I was going to go meet with, you know, an owner of an NBA club, every one of them may have been different. If I was going to meet with someone who was a CMO, they may have a different approach. If I went and worked with an inside sales group with a team, I had to understand, like, you got to know your audience, right? You need to know your material, you need to know your audience, you need to be succinct, get to the point, be open-minded, like, don't be so focused on I have to get my message across that when they start shooting questions in, you, you don't listen. Right. Just take a step back, throw it out there. And David was the best. I mean, literally the best at asking really tough questions and then using the Socratic method, drilling down and drilling down and drilling down till all of a sudden you realize like, you know, maybe my position wasn't right. Maybe yeah. I actually had the wrong thought process or, I could defend it, but you had that situation where you had to go back and forth with David, which was tough. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think there's a lot to be learned there for anybody who's going to go in and try to sell in a concept to upper management ownership or to your staff or to a client. You need to understand and do a little bit of homework first so that you understand the data, what your product is or what your, the point you're trying to get across. 
and then know your audience. It makes it a lot easier. Like going back to my insurance days, I knew I'd have much more success if I could bond with these people over the Celtics. Right. At that time, I hated the Celtics with a passion. Hated them, yeah. But you talk about right? building that connection and relationships. Correct. Now, now I'm okay with the Celtics. Right? <laughs> I got a lot of friends at the Celtics. Um, they have great ownership group there and they've done a lot of really good things, but you, know, you mature yeah, as you yeah. go along. But as a like, fan, when you're growing up as a fan of the Knicks, right? I'm not gonna exactly. Like now I've, you know, I'm not a fan of anything. I'm just a fan of the industry and I want everybody to do well. Yep. Uh, that's really the, the God's honest truth. And I can watch any game at any time, you know, when you were in Phoenix yep. or when you were in Miami. Yeah. I might watch some of your games just to be like, Oh, see how Travis is doing. See what's happening. Like, yep. why not? It's okay. Right. Yeah. No, absolutely. It kind of goes back to you. You just have a passion for the business and your craft, you know, and it continues out. And so your time at Team Bo, you know, you traveled around a lot. You obviously would, you even talk about, you'd walk in and meet with owners. And then the cool thing about Team Bo is you'd walk in, meet with owners, meet with the C-level executive team. And then you'd go out and meet with sales team members and marketing team members. So came across a lot of people and you know, have since hired a lot of really successful people. What were you, what would you say are some of the key attributes that those successful people brought to the table on a consistent basis? I would say number one, a willingness to learn. Number two, you know, a passion to get better. Yep. Right. You know, so again, uh, I think you've already had Brendan Donahue on the podcast as yep. well. Yep. Right. Yep. Um, and you know, your former boss and our good friend, Chris Zaber. Right. Yep. So when I was in Timbo, I met Brendan. He was originally uh, with the Pistons, and then when he transferred into a, a premium role with the Milwaukee Bucks, yep. I got to spend a little bit more time with him, and I just thought, like, here's an interesting guy that I think has a really bright future. I'm going to keep my eye on him. I built a relationship with him, as I do with most people that I work with, but, you know, I always had something in my mind, like, someday, I'm always thinking ahead, I'd like to be able to have Brendan and I work together. Yep. I did the same thing with Chris Zaber. So eventually when the time come and I left Teambo and I went to Atlanta, you know, we got settled in there for about six, eight months. And I said, Hey, you know what? I think we need to make some moves in our sales area. Let's bring in Brendan Donahue. Yep. Right. And then also behind him, we're going to also bring in Chris Zaber. Right. And, and that's what you do. And I think that's what, you know, the NBA allowed us to do, you know, working from Teambo is to find the people that had that passion and the people that really understood the business and were serious about having a, a professional future in this, in this, you know, industry yep. and you know, being able to cultivate that. And then that would then spread down. You know, there's an old saying that, you know, a level people generally hire a level people, yep. you know, B level people hire C level people. Like I wanted to surround myself with as many a levels as possible because yep. then they would hire people like Travis Apple. Right. Yep. No, and I think that, that you know, you hit the nail on the head on that end is you have to have that passion. You have to be open to learning. I think the other piece of advice for our listeners is like, you just never know who your next boss may be. And it may not be immediately, it may be five, 10 years down the road, but you know, building those relationships and you know, people are always going to remember the successful people and want to surround themselves with good people. Right. I mean, look, I think I probably told you this some, I probably told you this multiple times, you know, someday I'll be working for you. I sure hope. I know that. <laughs> and, and, and I'm okay with that. I might work for Brendan. I might work for, you know, whomever, but I've always said, I, and I would be okay with that. Yep. Like yep. my, my um, ego isn't that big that 
hey, if all of a sudden you came in and you were the president of our organization and I was an EVP, man, I, that would make me feel so good. Don't just remember to be nice to me. I'm, I'm okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, again, we're here on 52 Weeks of Hustle. The guest today, Lou DePauli, the Executive Vice President and Chief Revenue Officer of the New York Met. So, you know, Lou, you, you talked about, and we just hit on the business and the relationships, and you're spending time at Teambo, and you mentioned you end up going back to Atlanta. And you talk about relationships. You already talked about bringing in Brendan and Chris, who you'd met. You also went in to work alongside Bernie Mullen. Uh, yeah. Who, Ironically enough, you had a relationship with, you started and, and kind of worked with Teambo with them. So why did you know, as, as you went back to the Hawks and Thrashers and Phillips Arena, why was that the right time for you to go back to the team side? You know, the, um, the NBA job that we had at Teambo was amazing, right? It was a PhD level, you know, education in the business. Uh, we got to see how a league office operated. We got all clubs operated. We got to see how all the 16 WNBA teams operated. We started the G League when I was there. I was very involved in the setup, what was called back then the NBDL, yep. right? So it was a, an incredible amount of just education about this industry. And we traveled, as you know, uh, the, you probably saw some of the old reports that we wrote. I mean, we traveled every week. Yep. You know, I was gone three and a half to four days every week for probably 45 weeks a year going all over the country, visiting clubs and, and visiting teams and getting to see people, getting to know what was working on, sharing best practices. And after a while, you know, I realized like if I came in to see you in Chicago and, you know, we make a recommendation, I'd come back maybe eight weeks later or six weeks later, maybe things weren't completely executed the way I wanted or the way I suggested that I'd have to double back down. And then I started to realize I miss being the person who could actually do the execution, the implementation. You know, the teams were good. Um, when I had this conversation with David Stern, God rest his soul, you know, he said, you know what, you are a guy that has a team gene, right? We're glad to have you in the league office, but I know you want to work at a team. And you're just an operator. And I get that. And he said, you just you let us know what you think is the right opportunity. Then we started talking about, I had multiple opportunities while I was in the league office and I didn't wind up going to a couple of them. But then the opportunity, of course, to work with Bernie, yep. again, like, how could you not work with Bernie, right? We had such a good time working in Teambo. He went down to Atlanta. Um, I said, absolutely, I would go to Atlanta and work with Bernie because he was the best. And you want to work for someone who is a good person, a great leader, like, how can you go wrong? Right. So it, it was kind of a no-brainer. But, uh, you know, the NBA days were fun. And, uh, you know, I learned a lot on my way there. And then, of course, just going to work for Bernie in Atlanta was just, you know, right. like two old friends getting together and working together every day again. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think we've already talked a lot about, you know, the, the people you're bringing into Atlanta is, is certainly for your end, working around the right people and bringing in the right culture and the right mindset and, you know, making a lot of changes and, you know, having a lot of success, which is, you know, I owe myself, you know, I owe my career to you guys. And I know a lot of people do. And, you know, you kind of mentioned you you've constantly been getting a lot of job opportunities because you put your name in the right position. You've built these relationships. So, you know, as, as you're, you know, in Atlanta for over three years, you're having multiple opportunities and you end up back in major league baseball with the Pittsburgh pirates, you know, which ironically enough, full circle, right? Bernie had been at the pirates and, yep. <laughs> and now you're full circle. And so, you know, you end up spending over five years at the pirates setting records in revenue and attendance Mind you, while we had, you know, I think 17, 18, 19, and 20 straight losing seasons. So, again, back to the team performance. It's not all about team performance. But, 
you know, you're overseeing sponsorship, ticketing, analytics, PR, like as a leader, how do you continue to evolve as a leader to get the entire company, you know, really moving in the right direction, getting some wins, although personalities may be different. Look, so you, you gotta be willing to adjust, you gotta be flexible, but you can never, you know, you can never waver on your own, you know, morals and, and moral compass, right? You know, I could be a little bit more flexible or I could be a little bit softer with some people because I know that's maybe the style that works best for them. And some other people I can joke around with and kid with and, you know, be a little bit tougher on like I could with you or with Chris. You know, I could give you guys a little bit more of a harder time and be a little bit more direct, never rude, but I knew that you guys would react to that differently. Right. And, and I go back to looking at it as if I was a coach, right? I knew when I was a coach, when I was a player, going up playing high school basketball and, and, and baseball, like which coaches really worked for me and got the most out of me. And I could see how they worked with, they treated me one way. They treated one of the other star players a different way, but it worked for both of us. Right. You know, it's not one way or the highway. I'm coming in. This is who I am. It's more about, okay, how do I relate to, because again, your analytics, your head of BI, you know, your marketing, your sponsorship, your PR, your ticket sales, your premium people, everybody's going to have a different personality. And my job was always to find a way to say, okay, how do I get good relationships with everyone and then help them broker good relationships with each other? With each other. Because yeah. we all needed to work together so that we could have the most success possible. And I think looking back at those Pirates days, you know, it, it was. There was a lot of different personalities. At the end of the day, people work together, to your point, still having success when losing seasons were coming and, you know, and really kind of catapulted to that. And, you know, probably helped continue to elevate your career as, again, you had knocks on your door. And this time, you know, from the New York Mets, which you've now been there over seven years, but, you know, literally when the ownership group called you at that point in time, they created a role for you. You know, and created this, the executive vice president and chief revenue officer role that you have now. And so, you know, again, there's a lot of things that probably go into your decision making in regards to like, what's the right time? What's the right opportunity? But why was New York at that point in time the, the best fit for you and your family? Well, first of all, being born in New York, um, you know, it's, it's never too hard to go home. And then I worked uh, and lived in New York when I worked for Teambo. So my wife, um, who's from Massachusetts, you know, actually really enjoyed living in New York. You know, she loved Atlanta, she loved Miami, she loved Pittsburgh, but like New York obviously puts us closer to home. Yep. You know, my family is all in New York. Um, my wife's family is all in Massachusetts, which is a short ride away. A lot of our best friends are living in Connecticut. So it was an easy thing to go home, but it was also more important like about the opportunity. Here you are getting a chance to go into New York and work on the biggest stage that there is. And I know from afar, from watching, because I always had my team bow hat on, yep. right? Yep. Even when I was at the Pirates, I used to say, you know, the Mets, great brand. I still think there's opportunity there for someone like me or someone to get in there and help drive that business even further. Yep. So I always saw that. And when they reached out, you know, we had a conversation and I, you know, I hit it off. I mean, I, I still get uh, along with Jeff Wilpon very well. I eventually met Fred Wilpon and met some of the other people in the family and they run it like a family business. And I thought, you know, this is really comfortable. Yep. They were going to let me come in and do what I needed to do, but they'd also run it in such a, a good way that it made it easy for me to make that transition to go to New York and tackle, you know, such a, a big thing and a big job like it is in New York. 
Right. No, absolutely. And you guys have obviously turned a lot of things around, had a lot of success there, and certainly brought in a lot of great people. And I think going back to earlier in the podcast, we talked about what always, uh, one of the many things that always impressed me was just your ability to, to deal with ownership. And you kind of mentioned, you know, with the Marl, you know, back to insurance, you were, you were working with as an owner of the company to the AHL team, you were you know, working right with ownership as they bring in the team to the Marlins and two multiple owners to Teambo, you're dealing with every owner to Atlanta, you know, in those executive meetings. And, you know, even Brendan Donnie, who said on the podcast here on 52 Weeks Also, he always appreciated that you would give him the opportunity to go in and speak to ownership. Not a lot of people get that opportunity. And so, you know, then with, within the Pirates and now the Mets, like what additional advice do you have for people in regards to either setting meetings, like if they're on a sales end and they're trying to set a meeting with a CEO of a company, whether they're in the organization as a, a salesperson or a leader, to set a one-on-one -on -one meeting with an executive team member or an owner um, with top-level execs? Like what, what advice do you have for that? I think there's a couple of things. Number one, you have to understand that they're very busy people, right? They're, they're people just like the rest of us, and they do want to help their business grow. They do want to get to know their people. But if you're going to go in there, you need to be succinct, right? So um, uh, just a quick story going back to, to Teambo for a second, right, is I'd always had good relationships with the owners that I worked with in minor league hockey, um, and at the Marlins, I mean, we didn't deal with Wayne Huizinga too often because he wasn't as involved day to day, but John Henry was, and we had a good relationship, right? So I get to the NBA and I have a tendency to be a little verbose, especially in my writing, right? Mm -hmm. I like to write. I want to make sure everybody understands the full picture of what's happening. And one day I got a call from David Stern who said, hey, got your report on XYZ team. Great. This is a lot of information. I love it. I can't read all this every time you send me something. <laughs> Shoot me an email with three bullet points in it. That's all I need. You just tell me the three bullet points you, that I need to know. All the other stuff is great, but I just need three bullet points because I'm busy. Yeah. And I was like, oh, makes sense. Sure. So from there on in, it became emails with three bullet points. Need you to talk to owner about this. Here's an issue that they're having. They're doing really well here. And I said, okay. So now as you start dealing with other owners, you start to realize, you need to be short and to the point. You have to understand that they're very busy. Many times they have multiple businesses they're running or yep. that they own. So you need to understand, appreciate their time, get to the point. You know, don't pontificate. Don't use it as a chance to grandstand and show them everything you know. They're not interested in that at that moment. They're interested in how can you help the business? What's the problem or solution that you're presenting? And let's get to a resolution and let's move on. And if there's more time at the end for a little bit more talking or getting to know people or a little bit more, you know, openness to show off maybe some other skills, great. But you have to come in and just be very, very succinct and direct. Yeah. And, you know, the, the number three always comes full circle. And so I remember being at the Pirates, you know, and, and you would say, hey, can you send me the reports? But at the top list out the three top bullets that you that you want me to get out of this report you know and then ultimately you get to team bow and it's the uh, you know the dailies the three key takeaways and you know i've kind of applied that to my life and you know whether it be one-on-ones and even in this podcast at the end i'm going to ask you for three key takeaways to your point it's, it's short succinct and to the point right i mean that that's the key again whether you're on a sales call or you're trying to talk to somebody who's a business owner and i look at it as you know i was a business owner would I really give somebody a half hour, an hour of my time if they were just kind of talking? And talk? right. You came in, I was busy, I had a lot of things to do, my phone's ringing. Like, 
all right, I'll give you 10 minutes. You got you to get to me fast. You know, the old elevator pitch. You got you to tell me why you're here, what you can do to help me, and then let me digest some of it, and I can let you know whether I'm going to do it or not. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, Lou, you know, I, I think next here is given not only that I work for Event Dynamic, um, and it's 52 Weeks of Hustle is presented by Event Dynamic, but you were also – a big part of being customer number one for event dynamic uh, in, you know, helping maximize revenue and, and increase attendance and still a great partner of ours. So, you know, why did you decide to join and work with event dynamic and what has been some of the great benefits that, that you've seen? You know, that's a really great question. And uh, obviously our partnerships with event dynamics have been great. Um, you know, back when, you know, Rob first started off as, you know, sold out sports and, you know, he came to us in Pittsburgh you know, he, he did all the right things. He reached out to us. He flew up to Pittsburgh to meet with me and, my, and, and Chris Aber. Yep. And he just built the right relationship. You know, you could tell this guy was genuine, that he was smart, that he wasn't your typical, you know, person who was in that secondary market business at that time. And that I really trusted him and yep. thought, here's a guy that is going to do different things here in this business, which is good, which is what is needed. Yep. He was yep. focusing on the data and he was focusing on the pricing. Yes, he was going to resell some of your tickets, but he'd be willing to work with you on helping you drive your business as a win-win for everyone. So, you know, we, we did hit the partnership with the Pirates. Yep. Uh, then we came to the Mets. We did a partnership. And then the partnership just continues to grow with Rob and then, you know, with Event Dynamic. And then you wind up having all the new tools that he's bringing to the table as his company has grown right. where we're listening to anything and using Rob's tools wherever we can. It makes a lot of sense. No, well, we, we certainly appreciate the partnership. And I think it really goes down to, and I'm glad you said it, it it's almost like I threw a softball for you. It starts with relationships. You know, Robert right. Smith, the, the owner and founder of Event Dynamic, built a good relationship. And so you were more likely to open the door when he created this new business. Yeah, absolutely. And then anytime he's ever come knocking on the door or anytime like we want to have a conversation, he flies to New York, we talk. He and I just had a call the other day online, like, he's become almost like an extension of our staff, right? He's like one of my senior leaders. We have a good relationship personally. So it's like, okay, this is a great guy that you want to work with. No, absolutely. Well, good. Well, Lou, this has been awesome. Ton of great insight as always. And so to close it out, I always like to put our guests on the hustle hot seat. So you ready for this? Okay. So, you know, obviously I've built a, a good relationship and friendship with you. So I know, uh, you know, food has always been important for you. And so I, I'll put you on the hot spot here if you had to eat one meal every day for the rest of your life, what would it be? Cereal. Okay. Any specific type or just cereal in general? Cause you'll, you'll get some, some difference. Well, for me um, today at my current age, um, it's cinnamon checks. What would okay. I really like to be is like fruity pebbles or Cap'n Crunch. Cause I love <laughs> sugared cereal or frosted flakes, but you know, as I've gotten older, I realize that that doesn't really work. So <laughs> checks. I, I could probably live with, there's probably 30 boxes literally right now in my pantry because um, <laughs> I stock up and I eat it. It's, it's great. That's a consistent. Nice. So your next question, if you're going to sail around the world, what's the name of your boat? Ooh, uh, probably family. I mean, if I could put like the names of my kids on there, you know, Kathy, Ryan, and Emily, but then I'd have to also put Quinn, my granddaughter and, you know, but it would be something family related. Nice. No, you, you, and that's, you know, something we didn't even get the chance to talk about today, but you're obviously a, a huge family man. And, and, you know, I think that's what I always appreciated about working for you is, 
you know, it was my personal life first and foremost. And then I was, you know, then I was a professional. So I certainly appreciate that. And another question. So if you could choose two people to have dinner with dead or alive, who would they be? David Stern, Reggie Jackson. All right. So I assume you've already had dinner with David Stern and you've got quite a few stories. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, with, with Reggie Jackson, I'm sure that would be the, quite the, the three people at dinner there. I'd love to be a server for that. You know, as, as a baseball fan, you know, obviously being born in the, in the 60s, and I admired Reggie, even though I lived in New York, I admired him when he played for the A's. They were winning those World Series. Um, and then he wound up coming to the Yankees, which was amazing to me, and then what they did. But I always followed his career just because he was one of those guys that was, he was different at the time, but he always delivered in the clutch. I mean, obviously the, the moniker of Mr. October, right. he did that all year long. He may go 0 for 3 and strike out the first three times, but you get to the eighth inning, you needed a hit, he could hit a homer, he may get a double. Like He would do something to help you win that game. And yeah. I've always looked at that as like such an important, you know, um, characteristic and skill to have. Like that wasn't by accident. Right. You don't get to do that over and over and over so many times that it's not, it's not a coincidence. And that's and what I'm sure, you know, I, I think we've all seen elite salespeople and elite people in the business be willing to like, you know, if you think of sales, hey, my first, you know, 400 calls this week, I've been hung up on or no answers. And it's Friday at 530. And I'm still going with the same passion. I make a win, you know, and I find a way to win that call. So I think that's exactly right. So again, Reggie for like my, you know, period of life has been the biggest winner in sports. I mean, he and Jeter, obviously probably with the Yankees have had the most rings, you know, prior to that would be Bill Russell, you know, one of the greatest winners of all time. Right. Right. Winning in college, winning in the Olympics, and then winning almost every year with the Celtics. Yeah. Legendary. I mean, you know, he, he's an amazing person. I just don't – I really haven't had a chance to really get to know him. But, uh, you know, his, his winning tradition isn't by accident. That's a, that's a consistent thing. Well, you know, and then to finally to close it out, you've given a lot of advice here for 52-week hustle here. But what are three key takeaways you would give every listener to be in your shoes one day? Well, I would say, number one, understand the data. Like, know your numbers, right? You got to understand your metrics. It's something that I probably told you when you first started in sales with us back in Atlanta. Like, you have to understand the numbers that will drive your success, right? Some of the other numbers that are out there are nice, but you have to understand what is going to drive your success. So if you're at the sales rep level, it's how many calls, what's my average, you know, call length, what's my you know, average sale, what's my closing ratio, right? And when you get to my level or even higher, it's like, okay, how are we doing to move the business forward? Like how many tickets did we sell today? What's our sponsorship number? What's our retention levels? Like what, what, what's our margins on our concession business? Like you just have to know those things. You have to understand your numbers to be a successful business person. I would say number two, I'm going to say it's also very important in this business or whatever people want to do is you have to have work-life balance. You know, we only touched on it a little bit a few minutes ago, but that to me is one of the most important things that we can do. And that's why I spend so much time getting to know people personally, yep. because I'm, I'm more concerned about, you know, how you are as a person than how you are as an employee. Right. Because uh, I figure if, if everything's going okay for you at home and in your personal life, you're going to be a better employee. Right. And when I see things start to fall off, I know that there's something amiss somewhere. And if I can 
quickly digress to something that the great professor Bernie Mullen told me when I was relatively new starting in T-Bone. He and I were driving around somewhere together in his car and he talked about, you know, a, a, a chair with four legs on it, right? And he was talking, trying to explain that this is Bernie, you'll get a kick out of this, right? Is that it was a leg with four chairs. I mean, it was a chair with four legs. And that is your work-life balance. So if you're sitting in a chair like I am right now that has four legs, I'm very comfortable. Right. I don't have to worry about it falling over. So let's assume that the four legs on that chair are work, family, health, and religion. Whatever your four pillars are. Four pillars are, yeah, yeah. Right. If one of those pillars all of a sudden is shaky, you start to lose your balance. If all of a sudden one of them breaks, all right, you still might be able to balance, but if you start getting two or three of them that are shaky, you're going to fall down. Yep. And that's why I've always tried to make sure, like, hey, if you want to go out and do something on a game night that you have to go do something with your family or family-related, great. If, you know, Chris Zaber was coaching his ki- helping coach his kids' baseball team. Yeah, it's a Tuesday night. We had a game. Go coach the game. It's right. okay. Like, yep. because I know Chris would come back that much more energized the next day because he had the balance. Yep. And, and that's always been important to me to get to people. Um, and I would say the last thing is, you know, you hear this a lot, but this is a very small industry. It's big business, but it's a small industry. And you need to make sure that you have a good reputation and that you work for and with the right people. Yep. Um, you know, it's very important to work in an organization or for people who are going to see you as a future star in the business and help you get there versus somebody who looks in and says, okay, Travis is a hired gun. I'm going to bring him in because he can make our numbers better. I don't really care what happens to Travis. I'm not worried about developing him. I need results. And he's a guy, he's a results guy. You know, those aren't necessarily the best situations to be in. If you can work for someone who cares about you, it's going to help groom you, help you get to those numbers, but also help you, blossom into uh, more of a professional and take that next step. Those are always the people that you want to work for. And those are usually the organizations that have the most success. Right. No, absolutely. Well, Lou, thank you so much. As always, great advice. You know, you're a huge mentor and a big piece of, of how I've got to where I'm at today. So, you know, certainly appreciate it. You've had a great career, always great talking to you and, and certainly appreciate your time and expertise. But my pleasure and good luck with everything, Travis. Thanks. Thanks again. And and again, this is Travis Apple. Thank you for listening to 52 Weeks of Hustle presented by Event Dynamic. Please be sure to follow the podcast and watch on YouTube. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. So follow us at 52 Weeks of Hustle. We'll be back next week with another industry leader. Have a great week. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. 
Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.